Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 149 with Taylor Adams. Taylor is a director and theater artist based in Omaha, Nebraska. They are just delightful and have a lot of awesome stuff to offer our industry in terms of ways of re-envisioning how we go about theater and how to empower actors with autonomy in a given space. So I hope you'll enjoy that. I wanted to shout out CJ Higgins, who is our editor for the podcast. Taylor and I talk about briefly about title of show, and I just wanted to congratulate CJ on their run of title of show. And thank you, CJ, for making the podcast sound super awesome. If you're enjoying this podcast, I bet you would probably like the subtext podcast, which you can check out on americantheater.org. Thanks for listening, friends. I know that the backdrop right now for LGBTQ plus folks, it's got me worried. I don't know if you've read the piece on drag bands that I wrote for American Theater, but... I would ask that if you're an ally of the community, you stay updated on what's happening uh, with these pieces of legislation that are being introduced that hurt all of us in the queer community, but also will will lead and have already started to lead to uh, censorship of theater across the country. So keep your eyes open, keep your hearts full, and thanks for being here. Please enjoy episode 149 with Taylor Adams. Super excited to welcome Taylor Adams to the podcast. Welcome, Taylor! Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Taylor. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, there, and I'm so excited to be on the podcast. So you recently were on vacation. Tell me all about it. Yeah, um, so I just went to Colorado to see my brother. He lives in Longmont. I love to like get away after a project. And I just finished uh, directing a all-woman production of Ruthless, the stage mother of all musicals at my alma mater at Creighton University. Um, and it was just so delightful. Um, and I was so happy that I got to go away and just do some reflection on just what went well and what maybe uh, we could do better next time. <laughs> Let's dive into the production in a second, because I love, I am so enthralled by this concept of all women and drag and very, very happy, very, very happy to get into that. But did we know that I, I was in Boulder for like four years? That's where I got my MFA and then half of a PhD, but like no long month very well. Were there like, did you see any theater while you were there? Or were you mainly like being a tourist of see, seeing the mountains and those things? <laughs> you know, um, for me, uh, when I go on vacation, I, I, do not talk to anyone. I think being my job uh, currently is so uh, community-based um, that I like to be a part of community when I'm on vacation and and not lead or see anything. Um, and so for me, uh, it was really just a quiet drive of podcasts, driving around. Um, I'm starting a new design um, for Little Shop of Horrors. So I went down to downtown Denver and did some um, scenic just 
did some scenic inspiration driving for me. And uh, I also love listening to creepy podcasts while I'm in Colorado because there are so much creepy history. So no, no art theater, I would say, but I would say I saw some great art like murals on the wall, which was always great. Um, plus, I have some friends at um, Colorado Opera who always want me to come and do stuff and I am never available. So part of me is like, I can only go to Colorado to to relax. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll feel bad. <laughs> well, we love we love Colorado. So tell me, tell me about Ruthless. And I I think in the world of drag folks maybe aren't super well versed in what we might call AFAB queens, folks who are assigned female at birth who then do the art of drag. Shout out to Sigourney Beaver, shout out to Victoria Scone, among other beautiful oh. humans. If you have not seen uh, either Drag Race UK season four or Canada versus the world <laughs> or season three of Dragula, check it out. It's, it's, it's such a cool thing to me. I I love honoring that part of drag as well. So talk me through choosing the show and how, and just like what was the gender journey on the show in terms of how you approached it as a director? Yeah. Um, well, first off, I the, if Victoria Scone hears this, I love you so much. Um, you are the most- We're going to tag, tag both of them in the Twitter. Oh, <laughs> gosh. And Sigourney, you're great. Um, all of you. Um, I just, I have such a deep respect for AFAB queens specifically because I think drag is about the exploration of gender. It's not the characterization of gender, right? Which I think oftentimes can get lost on AMAB uh, queens where it's assigned males at birth. Because I think there's such intrinsic misogyny with in everything we do, that oftentimes if you're assigned male, you are created with a misogynistic lens that you constantly need to fight through. And so to see um, women who are women from from their mo moment of creation, to be able to emphasize what their gender is, I think is brilliant. And so um, I wanted to really dive deep into what that idea of gender and how we present ourselves to the world when I was working on Ruthless at Creighton. Um, a little bit about Creighton. Um, I graduated there from 2020. Um, it is a Catholic Jesuit institution. Um, yeah, um, uh, the face of Woodsick is uh, eyes out. Yeah, I went to a Catholic. I, I, uh, I guess, dear <laughs> listener, if you've been listening for a while, you know, sometimes I have to annotate what my face is doing doing a podcast. So thank you, Taylor, for that. <laughs> yes, um, I did go to a Catholic private school um, after I auditioned for a bunch of different schools, a bunch. I said three. I was not in a great place senior year of high school and I didn't want to do all that work. And I, I got into everything academically, but didn't get into the the conservatories I wanted to artistically, um, which, you know, is OK. I think I got sent on the journey that I was supposed to go on. And so I got asked to uh, come back and direct a show at Creighton after my a show in fall, which was popularity coach at the Children's Theater, which discovered gender exploration for young people. Um, brilliant. Made some conservative families mad love that that that's my artwork I love making people upset um but I was originally asked to come and direct title of show which is by Hunter Bell and Jeff Bowen fantastic show about four people writing a musical about four people writing a musical very meta very fun um 
But when we had auditions, no men auditioned. And I am of the faith that if I have, you know, eight extraordinary women who showed up to my auditions and deserve to be on stage for their time and their talent that they gave me in that audition, I'm not going to hunt down two men who didn't want to be there to be in a show that doesn't fit the partner or the place that I'm directing. That just seems really silly to me. And it seems like a slap in the face to the women of the program who who deserve to have a chance. Yeah, and, so, and if, I may, if I may interject, you're modeling. I think it's really important what you're modeling because so often I feel like the when I was as an elder millennial, <laughs> trained up in theater, it was sort of you were just sort of told that's the way it is. Like, you know, you're gonna it's gonna be so much more competitive for women and it's a beautiful thing to do instead of modeling for those folks that yeah you know what if if men don't show up then we just um you know the six the six six of you are just not going to be in it and in addition we are going to do extra labor to get two men in here uh because we were so invested in the show itself and not in the people who showed up and so i think and then that becomes to them part of what theater is so thanks for letting me interject there. But I, I love that you pivoted. Yeah, well, it just doesn't make sense to me either that like, God, I, you know, men, cool. I mean, you're, y'all are cool, I guess. Um, But like, there are so many talented women who I know in programs where I can be like the talent of women to men ratio outnumber. And why aren't we celebrating the women who have the talent, have the time and the dedication instead of like, Gosh, you know, I think of the times where I was in school studying performance and people were making paths for me as a person who appeared male and had the voice of a male, though I do not identify that as that way, making space for me to perform when I knew people who with twice as much talent as me who were stage assistant stage manager for the fourth time in a row because we have to do a Tennessee Williams piece or something. You know what I mean? Like, that's so dumb. Like, that is dumb, 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 dumb. And so um, I, you know, and I don't think it needs to be that way. Like, I think we need to start being much more flexible in how we make art and look at um, our audition room. And then we can figure out what story are we telling as a group? It's a little bit of a mixture of devise work with like commercial theater it's a little weird but it definitely creates a more personal product and so when we started auditioning and we were auditioning them for title of show um you know I was doing all the director things I do like oh they'd be good in this part they can't really sing that note so you know whatever um I had all these ideas of what would sound good in their voices but I I didn't have the spots for them and so um I looked over at my producer um who was my mentor uh, who is my mentor Amy Dr. Amy Lane um fabulous um she's done a lot of really good work for women in Omaha as well and my music director Cecilia Jensen she's fantastic we all were like why are we trying to make space for men who are not here uh that's just silly so uh we all started feverishly looking online during auditions like what is a better musical with eight women and um so we were down to doing like lizzie the lizzie borden like musical but only has four people we were looking at this one uh about goblins i forgot the name of it um but it's only like two women and i was that was originally the one they were all shooting for and i was like y'all listen i am a very campy comedy queen here um i am not a uh 
a goblin mischievous quite yet. I'm not sure that I've developed that palette in my directing eye <laughs> quite yet. Um, if anyone's listening who needs someone to direct a goblin or gremlin show, please hire me. I'd be great for it. <laughs> but I was just real in that moment. I was like, maybe not. Big jump from title of show. And so we ended up talking about Ruthless, which, uh, funny story, I was over in London um, in 2019 studying abroad, specifically studying, uh, I took, I was taking a class called Gender Fuckery, um, which was the, the class in the description. That was the description of the class. And I was just interested about gender performance and interested about like, how do we do this in ethical ways? And how do we do this to create personas instead of just characterize, right? And so it was fabulous. It was at the University of Goldsmiths. I forgot my professor's name, but he was just wonderful. And we also talked about devised queer storytelling about like through the AIDS epidemic. And it was just brilliant. I love that class. And I was over there seeing all the London theater. And this one ad kept on coming on my like show ticks now or whatever. Ticks now or whatever. I don't know what it's called. Right, yeah. Um, there was like, come see Ruthless. And every time I would be like swiping up, I was like, I don't want to see this. Like, get out of here. There's so many ads all the time. But it was just like the universe, like delicately throwing me this bone of this show will be important to you and uh we come across it in the audition room and I'm like oh my god I know this show because I never wanted to see it um and what a shame it I never wanted to see it because it was so funny and it's so well written and brilliant and it lends itself to drag performance um it's written with drag performances in it specifically with cis men playing women now there is a few things of uh, about Creighton that I would like to add with it being a, a Catholic university is that they're very strict on on gender performance in in that public scene um and I, you know just being very frank uh, as a queer person I felt there I felt that I couldn't be authentically myself through how I presented and for my own safety not trying to catch a defamation suit or anything so I'm just going to speak on my own uh well, feeling and then just the larger lens I appreciate that and I appreciate how I don't want to say delicate delicate but like you put that in a very wonderful way and just the larger landscape of being a theater artist creating work in Nebraska under a you know under the backdrop of anti-drag laws drag bills I can't imagine and so just thank you for continuing to make make the art and I can it's absolutely understandable like being in it would seem like it's like extra extra top of mind for you I would assume it always is. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, and I wanted when I we decided to do Ruthless uh, and, you know, we didn't have the script at the time. I only had the Broadway HD recording. So as a director, I only had a recording of someone else's production to make a thesis, make a make a show uh, concept off of. And so for me, knowing that we had all women in our cast and knowing that the script is camp. Yes. Um, but camp also, I love it. It's great. I do think at times it can lend itself to, to misogyny, just like any type of work can. And, you know, the full title of the show is ruthless, the stage mother of all musicals. And I, what I didn't want to have happen was have all these women coming in to make art with me, where we characterize and make fun of women in show business. Like that wasn't, wasn't what I wanted to make this comment on specifically 
just as a director with this process, I was being really sure to not to not do to not ever make a woman feel like theater isn't the place for them because it is right. And so um, we started talking about how we can be not characters, but rather a gender exploration of our own persona in these different roles. And how can we as as Taylor be this character or how can Hannah be Tina, who is the little like evil tiny girl who murders the other girl for the lead in the play right like it could spoiler alert no, spoiler <laughs> yes you know but like how can we how can we tell this story without characterizing women as a gender while also making sure that these don't read as real people but rather comedy archetypes right it was a very delicate line and also doing it in the style of camp with john waters elements and putting these women in you know, I would say light drag um, of of women. Um, it was interesting. It was almost like an experiment um, on this campus that um, is fairly uh, strict when it comes to gender performance. Um, really interesting, really interesting. Also considering they were about to do hairspray before the pandemic. So I would just, I'm, I'm really curious. I was curious about that. You know, and I had a lot of great friends involved with that production. And so just being curious about like how we do queer art at Catholic universities whose messaging often doesn't support the queer fight, right? So like that's something I'm often really curious about. It's like, I don't know, my high school doing Once on this Island being a predominantly white institution, right? Like there's there's similar things there that I'm I'm confused about, like if your institution that is setting us up isn't doing that, I'm going on a tangent. Maybe we should include that part. Well, no, I think I think we should include it because even today, you know, even today, we're recording this in March of 2023. There's a product there's two productions circulating currently. Moana Jr., where I believe they cast mostly, if not all, white youth actors. And then uh, a production of, I believe it's the King and I that I just saw where it's 2023 and we're still not away from folks thinking like our peers, right. Thinking that it's okay to cast white folks in roles that are not meant for white folks. And I think, especially with these junior, which I mean, I think unfortunately happens more than we would like. And there are some of the junior versions that do open up casting in a way where I'm, Maybe let's go there. What do you, how do you feel about those? I mean, the argument is, well, we want the kids to experience this production. And so, and for the licensing organization too, like it's more income for them, but it's, I think people underestimate the impact that that makes not only on the audiences who see that show and think that it's okay, perhaps, because they're trusting in that theater maker to make those decisions. But then also, especially when it's youth theater, those youth actors grow up thinking that that's okay. Yeah, and I think here's another thing that with that specific topic we really need to dive into is the power dynamic of it being an educational environment. There's one thing for a community theater or a regional theater to do to cast a show inappropriately with actors who audition from in the community or whatever, but it's another thing for a kid to sign up for like drama club and then be casted in a role that they should not be casted in over the sense of education. 
right? And so, like, it puts the young people in a, a space of uncomfortableness. I think our young people are so intelligent. They know right and wrong. They know specifically the complexities of race, gender, identity ideas way more than I would say I did at that time, way more than I would say any one of us because we have TikTok, because we have these internet things that allow young people to know this information. I think it I think it creates a very uncomfortable boundary that is being crossed for young people to play these roles. I also think we have Broadway HD. I also think we have field trips. We have the ability to talk to people who are part of the story that they want to tell, that they can engage with it in different ways and not become the characters that we can engage in art very differently. Um, And I just don't think maybe uh, doing an all-white production of Once on this Island uh, or uh, In the Heights is maybe the best way to engage with that specific art. That just seems really culturally unconscious. Right. Sorry, In the Heights, that was even just a year ago, right? Like, there was a regional production. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. But people, I think we live in an echo chamber sometimes, you know, the as what would we call maybe the theater artists who really not that we've, you know, that are invested in equity, diversity, and inclusion work, right? Like we can live in an echo chamber a bit. And so I think there are people who are in disbelief that these things are still happening, but they, they are right. They, they are. I, it's happening less, we hope, but there are still folks who we have not, let's say converted over (laughs) to holding responsibility in terms of their programming choices and the impact that that has on audiences and the actors who are cast in that show. I agree. I will say, though, talking about like, um, I worked at a children's theater for quite some time. And so a lot of my work is based in how we educate young people, right? And specifically, a lot of my work that I really wanted to talk about was how can we talk about queer art for young people in a way that engages them, doesn't make them feel uncomfortable, allows them to engage with a cultural aspect of the world. Queer is just a part of that. And how can we engage with that? And I think we can do that in many different ways with different identities, right? But we can do it consciously and we can do it without taking on the culture or taking on the identity of someone to be able to appreciate that that art, right? And so... For instance, when I was working at this children's theater, we did a production of All Shook Up. And so like jumping into like gender identity, first off, I don't think maybe we should have been doing that production. It was in 2021 and it just did not, um, the vibes of the world did not fit the message of that show. I did not pick that show, but uh, you know, it was the show I was assigned. And so for me, looking at that material, it was really important for me to be like, okay, so I think we're, if we do the show as is, it's going to actively do damage to these young people trying to take on personas of things that just aren't helpful to them right now. But what we could do is since it's based off of Shakespearean's Twelfth Night, and we understand the idea of Shakespeare being about gender fuckery, um, mainly for men and young boys, but whatever um if we take just that very simple concept and we allow the young people to decide how their character portrays themselves in this universe then we can explore this idea of queer 
art together because I was teaching a group of teens, most of whom were identifying as LGBTQ, but couldn't do that outside of camp. So they couldn't go home and be themselves. And so it was really important for me that, okay, we have this specific production, right? Let's allow them to explore facets of their true identity through this character in a safe way. And so using that same model of like, okay, you want to explore this part of your identity, being safe about it, let's take your character and let's smash them together. Um, so it's themselves living authentically through this character and they just change. Maybe they're wearing a skirt while playing the nerd, or maybe they wear an orange dress while being Elvis Presley. You know what I mean? Like, what if we allow young people and actors who are in these educational settings to have agency on how they portray themselves so that not only is their character authentically themselves or but also allows them to explore facets of their identity that they can't do outside of their um bedroom you know what I mean um <laughs> I mean I, I just think of so many times where I dressed up as like Snow White in my bedroom and locked the door to make sure no one could walk in and I would play like princess and then I would like take it off and be like as butch as I can be, which is uh, <laughs> maybe one degree more butch. But like, why can't we do that in a group setting? And so like, I think there's a way we can explore identity I, I, identity and, and race and gender through different ways that doesn't necessarily taking on problematic, like shows that we maybe shouldn't be filling in for, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love your brain so much. Uh, I can't even imagine and I mean I don't I don't want this to be about I don't want this to be about drag bills and it's just but there's just I mean to me there's two levels of consciousness I have I have right now where it's the executive function level that like keeps me moving forward and then if I pause and think it's the other level of like oh crap how many like did any drag bills get moved forward today did all this stuff and I think my heart goes out and I think so much about queer youth right now and specifically queer youth in in states where they're seeing this play out. And so I just wanted to, th one, thank you for being there, for, for being there, for being a leader, for being a mentor that these young folks can look up to and say, hey, like, this is someone who has excelled in the industry that I'm interested in. And um, they're doing things in a way that's really cool where I can be myself. And then I just want to, if you're open to it, like, let's, to use a very straight metaphor, let's get under the hood. Like, are you, are you willing to share? I think this podcast at its best maybe gives some pointers to folks who are, who have their toe in the EDNI pool and they want to do better and they want more one-on-one -on -one examples of what folks are doing who are doing it well that hopefully they can incorporate into their own practice like maybe that's a lofty goal but I I hope to some extent that's the audience and it may just be you know LGBTQ plus non-binary neurodivergent folks and then welcome we love you too and and welcome to your place in in the choir of Woodzik um preaching to the choir which is another I gotta stop with the metaphors and let you talk a little bit so when you would you say you develop even a, a specific framework that's unique to you as a director when you go into youth spaces as a leader and 
what is that framework and how can folks maybe learn from and perhaps incorporate that into their own theatrical practice as a director? Yeah, well, thank you for that lovely question. And also, I feel like I'm monologuing, so uh, <laughs> please interrupt all the time. Um, not interrupting, it's conversation. And also, hi, gays, to all the gays listening. Yeah, I, you know, I I was applying to a couple fellowships, so this brain is on my, this, this question's on my brain a lot. Um, as a director um, and then as artist maker, but mainly as a director leading spaces that is creating art collectively, right? Like, I believe arts are collective. It is not one brain it is not my brain it is the brain of all mashed together to make a massive brain um which i love i think that's so cool it's a superpower um i have three m rules that i keep in my space as a director the first one is always do no harm i believe art should be fun even if you're doing um something so deep and serious if you are doing um hamlet you can still have fun you can still do dark pieces without doing harm to the actor i began my career as a performer i've been of a part of a lot of spaces where i left feeling shittier <laughs> than arriving and i just think that is sad you know oftentimes at least where i'm from theater is something that we do for fun it, it's not necessarily a career that many people can afford themselves in Nebraska because we don't have that art, art opportunity like many major cities. Um, I'm very fortunate and privileged in that way to be able to make my career this. And so it's really important for me, at least working in my community. And I don't think it matters whether it's a community-based product or a professional paid gig. Do no harm to your actors. They should leave feeling good. But it is, I think, really imperative when someone's doing it just to have a good time. They can't leave feeling like, well, now my life sucks. <laughs> like that just shitty. The other idea, the other thing that for me is really important in process is that your characters should be a step away from the person you have performed. I, I believe theater in every essence is drag, right? We are emphasizing certain parts of our identity that we don't necessarily emphasize. And to me, that is what drag is. It is emphasizing a part of my own personality that often gets hidden by how we have to portray to a straight presenting world. That's what it is. I think theater is how we portray certain aspects of ourselves in different characters, but that aspect of our character is still innately embedded with my, the DNA of myself. So as a director, I'm constantly looking for the characters that are a step away, a hop and a skip from that character. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be, I'm looking, I'm casting Hamlet, I need to find someone who just got their dad killed by an uncle. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that I'm looking for a person that can appear to me as someone who has the ability to look at the world through a, if I was casting Hamlet, right, looking through the world as someone who's looking at it through very um, untrusting eyes if I were to break down the character of Hamlet, really, basically. Um, that's obviously a very minimal thing, and I do a lot more prep work before an audition. Um, and then I think, finally, is allowing actors to have agency in how they present to audiences. I think is so important. If your actor is uncomfortable on stage wearing the thing that they're wearing, and this is where directors and costumers need to be best friends, we can't have that happen, right? Like, there's been so many times where I've been casted as a butch role 
where I have felt so unseen as a artist. It made me feel like I was a two-dimensional cardboard cutout to fill in for a man, right? Because like for me, I don't identify as a man. And so being placed on stage as the man in every show because there's no other fucking men made me want to hurl my body into the sun. Why couldn't I be in Three Sisters? Why couldn't I be Olga? And I can tell you why is because because oh, there's other so women, right? <laughs> like there's other women who deserve to have those roles, right? But like if I, you know, when I did Three Sisters, I was cast as Andre. If I could have had the agency to have Andre also be exploring their own gender identity through that role and it not be a part of the script just a part of the design how gorgeous and interesting and complex would that show have been because it allows for the audience to do a cerebral why is Andre wearing an orange dress when it's three sisters and their brothers in a dress I mean this is a very like I'm just taking one show I've done that made me feel kind of gender displaced no I love it if I may interject yeah I think about the last female role that I played before I came out as non-binary was Alice in the Addams Family and for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the musical it's a very desperate housewife like Pollyanna she literally speaks in rhymes uh she's a very bad she's a poet and she has some she gets past a truth serum at the end of act one by mistake. Um, and then it's just very open about uh, how terrible her life is. And gosh, I just really, one, there was a, there was a bit of me who was like, I really wanted to play Gomez, but that was not something I felt comfortable voicing. And the person who did play Gomez did a very lovely job, but I just, I've never named that feeling for myself, but the idea of want, I mean, having a very bright yellow floral costume and uh, a very, a very blonde wig. And just like, you sort of survive it. I take the Beth Malone approach of I'm going to treat it like drag, right? Like that's how I survive. But yeah, I absolutely did want to throw myself into the sun a bit. And as we continue, thank you for letting me interject. Um, as we continue along with your framework and, and, pedagogical steps that you take as a director in a space do we still have a place for quote-unquote type in 2023 because I don't know about you but that was instilled in me real hard I was point blank told by my audition teacher senior year of undergrad you're super talented but you're a character actress no one's gonna know what to do with you until you're almost 40 that is what I was told at age 21 at an institution that I was paying for the, my parents were paying for the privilege to go and get that reflected to me. And so I just wonder how do you, is it worth teaching that to students? Type, I mean, do folks who are coming up, I'm thinking about queer kids who are coming up in theater. I mean, do they sort of have to know, know that to navigate it, but then completely subvert it? I mean, what, how does that play into your framework? You know, I think, <laughs> Hi, Francisco. My cat's right behind me, all. If you, uh, none of you can see this, but my cat is making a mess. Um, that, that inspired them. They were like, "I, I have got to get more into the frame now." Since you're talking about type and theater, truly. Hi, buddy. I, <laughs> I can give you an optimistic answer. 
and then I can give you a realistic answer. Optimistic. I appreciate it. Yeah. Optimistic. I hope one day it doesn't matter a damn thing about how the actor appears that they can play any role. I think that would be an optimistic answer. I think a realistic answer is no, that won't happen. Um, but that doesn't mean freelance directors can't change the practice for themselves. And I think those little productions are what causes commercial theater to change, right? Commercial theater is not original. <laughs> um, it it takes good ideas from fringe theater and fringe art and makes it commercial. It makes palatable for large audiences. Let's be real. So if we as fringe directors start this idea that who you are as an as as how you present is not necessarily how you need to present on stage is something that can happen, but it won't start realistically with commercial theater, right? We're still producing theater and we probably will constantly producing theater in my art time for cis audiences, straight audiences. That's just something I think that will happen for a very long time. But I think it can change in those fringe spaces and it can slowly change that practice over time. I don't think it will take, I don't think it will be a fast change, but I think it could be a slow and meaningful change with that process. Um, I'm also so sorry that happened to you uh, as someone who is non-binary myself and being put into roles where it's like, oh God, again. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it It's dehumanizing. Um, it feels very much like I'm a product. And I guess like for me as a director, the one thing I will always say is I will never let an actor leave feeling used by me as an artist I, yeah I just I can't I can't in my ethical brain allow myself to be a leader of a room and make someone feel that way in any any sense and so I, anything I would say to like newer directors or or directors who maybe are are thinking about how they create and are listening is that I would always say as a director you are more than the art you make and I think as artists, we are often thinking about, oh, what's the next project I on? I know that I am always thinking about like, oh, what is this saying about me? How does this, does this art project make me be perceived by others? When you leave my direct, when you leave a, a rehearsal room with me, actors will know that they, as a person, are more than what they produce in a rehearsal room, put on stage. They are more than the ticket sales. They are people, and those people deserve to be seen as authentically themselves while creating art. We would never ask a HR person to forfeit their whole life persona to do finance. Why are we asking artists to forfeit their whole life to make art? I think for me, at least through the pandemic as well, and I, I'm curious to see about you um, with who you are as a person, is that work allowed me, through the pandemic, allowed me to realize that my work is not my life. You know, I, I'm an artist. That's how I make money. But I also am a full-fledged human being with emotions, with with. Um, identity goals about being more patient, being learning, deepening my understanding of anti-racism and and learning about gardening. You know what I mean? Just throwing about different things that I'm interested in. I I'm more than just I put on flashy gay productions. And I always ask my artists 
after leaving rehearsal rooms. What are you doing for yourself this weekend? What are you doing to nurture the person who's making this art? Because if you don't know that answer, oh, baby, you better find it out. Uh, We got to figure out who you are outside of, of what we create in this room. That makes me sad that I spent so much of my life not having a personality of outside of the things I was working on. And so um, I guess I want to make sure that my artists and my directing and my my room that I lead have a life outside of what we do. So that was I think that is one of the most important things that with do no harm are like those two things. That's really important for me as a director. It's really exquisitely articulated. <laughs> Thank you for that. I do think that there's been, I see the shift in, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying post pandemic, I won't do it. Um, no. <laughs> but, uh, did I say post pandemic? No, 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 you didn't. I, did, I, was, I was editing myself, but. Okay, good, good, because I, I don't believe that, in that. <laughs> I think I just resonate with what you said so much because I think the way in which theater perhaps used to be taught or is taught was taught by some was you have to be this puppet you have to be everything to everyone you have to expect to not have a life and to be you know waiting tables until the next thing and I think there are many ways to lead a theatrical life and I really love the change that at least the pockets of change I'm seeing seeing folks say we're not going to do 10 of 12s for tech people in this cast have children their transportation things like there's just it could be done but we're going to care about the humans that are are making this work care about the artists and technicians and designers and so we're gonna have an eight-hour work day and not a 10-hour work day right and then also seeing more care being given to yes artists who are parents and what scheduling do they need and what you know can we bring child care Let's bring childcare in as part of the conversation when a contract gets written. The people who I want to make art with are the ones who are not afraid to speak up for themselves. I think agency is huge. I think many of the folks of my generation, which I hope was kind of the last generation who the training was predominantly this way, was just that you had to push yourself to the extreme, right? Type was a thing. You had to push yourself to an extreme. There was one way to do things. And I think, and that you had to be sort of docile, that you had to do what you were told without question. And the thing is, when you do what you're told without question, that's where misogyny can thrive. That's where racism, you know, homophobia, transphobia, because people are frightened into being silent because they were told that in the theater industry especially if you're an actor you don't speak up for yourself you just do what you say so that you get the next contract because if you're not going to do it there's a hundred people hundred people behind you are going to take your spot and it's like it takes such work to unlearn that and i see my peers who are really naming those things and setting new boundary and so i think i want to i want personally i want to work with artists who lead with authenticity and autonomy and compassion and who prioritize communicating the needs of the group. You know, I, I just think that there's a kinder, there's a kinder, more compassionate way to do theater. Theater does not have to equal struggling, you know? And I I love that, you know, what are you going to do? What are you doing for yourself? I think it's the same thing that we 
you know, when folks are activists or um, we talk, or therapists, right? You talk about compassion fatigue. If you're part of a, a historically marginalized group, you talk about ambassador fatigue. And theater shouldn't intrinsically be part of that, you know, because activists and therapists hopefully are consenting to do that emotional labor, right? They're saying, this is part of my job, but that's not written into the job description of an actor, right? Like, and and the more that we can do to create the best circumstances where people are not afraid, you don't want to leave a rehearsal room shitty. That's not to say, that's feeling shitty, as you said. That's not to say that there aren't things that should be challenging. Like, I love, I love a challenge, right? But there, I think sometimes people mistake discomfort and subpar working conditions and uh, folks in power who shouldn't be in power it's not synonymous for a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. There's a challenge. If you're being challenged, there should, in my opinion, there should still be autonomy in being able to, for <laughs> for those of you on antidepressants, titrate that challenge, right? Like oh, yeah. I, I have the autonomy to say, today this is too much of a challenge and what modifications can be made in the process, but I'm still going to end being part of the team and all of that all of that stuff which is leading to me saying i have i've written all these notes when you are talking because you're so smart (laughs) i think unfortunately sometimes though people see these values that we're you know obviously we have shared values here you and i you and i I think sometimes and maybe part of that is because we're midwesterners um but i think sometimes that compassion leading with compassion and things of that nature can sometimes unfortunately be seen as weakness by some like how do you how do you how does that sit with you and how do you navigate those spaces and then also as part of that question do you think that how do we get away from this idea of the director being the smartest person in the room right because that's that's almost one of the first things that I'll say to a new cast like I know that I'm I may I'm not going to be the smartest person in the room on all the things that's impossible mm-hmm. and that's why I want y'all to speak up if you think that there's a better way to do stuff and we can still do that within the structure of yes don't give another actor a note yes speak respectfully to me as the director because at the end of the day I'm going to be making the decisions for the unity of the piece how does that stuff sit with you and how do you navigate it? Well, I love playing the dits. I am a Gemini through and through. So yes. if you know anything about astrology, you know that Geminis love to play dumb um, to, uh, I don't want to say emotionally manipulate, but I mean, it is. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't like to ever present myself as, as overly intelligent because I find that it is, uh, I, I think if you present yourself as if you have all the answers not only will people treat you as if you have all the answers and it sets yourself up for failure when you don't have that answer, I think also um, it lets people not want to talk to you. Um, if you can't be a real human that is not uh, the most smartest in the room, which can be really intimidating to specifically new actors, uh, and I'm saying this with quotations, y'all, uh, most smart person in the room, because I can tell you what, directors are never the smartest person in the room. It's usually someone in the chorus um, who sees it all. Um, I think it allows for better agency, right? One of the, I always establish community agreements with the cast where I let them pick the rules of this environment and I will lead with the rules that they follow, what they set. I do not set those rules. And I think it starts from day, uh, from audition being like, who are you? Tell me who you are. 
And I want to be the audience to you and basically giving, making them feel from the audition onward that they are leading the room. And I am just being the person that funnels everyone's ideas into right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right? That's really what I think of the director. I'm just taking all of those ideas together to make sure that we can do this three-legged race the most efficiently. Um, usually like a 30-legged race, if we're being honest with theater. And so that's important for me, is that I never try to present that I am the smartest, which I think some directors do with with many different ways. Um, I think, uh, can you give me the second part of that question? Right. The second part, which was the part that I started with, is when folks see that as weak. Well, I want to, when folks see that as weakness, but I want to interject. I think it's a love, when you say playing the dits, I think that is a really lovely calling in tactic that I just want to call out in this moment where <laughs> and I think it's just, it's a great tool for everyone to use on a more smaller level, a smaller level with microaggressions. If someone says something, that you perceive to be a microaggression, sometimes a more effective way is, is saying, tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. And continuing with that in a very earnest way until the other mm-hmm. person kind of works out a little bit, <laughs> hopefully in the best case scenario, oh, there is a better way to say that. Mm-hmm. I should have Googled something before saying that. So I, I think it's a very... I am so in awe of people who are able to pull that out in the moment. So thank you for that. But yes, the other part of that question is in an industry where we, and I think I think Sarah Porkalab said this in an interview recently, I think we are shifting from the director as the leader of the show to the playwright. I think it's a very interesting um, in 2023 with new works. Like, I think that's maybe where we're moving a bit, but the you know, stereotypical director. Maybe we think a little bit about quirky St. Clair in Waiting for Guffman, but who has all the pieces and is very, you know, very in charge. And then I just think that some people think see it, unfortunately, as weakness when you're saying, show me your whole self. Let's break this paradigm of theater open as a hierarchical structure. Like, I want to hear what you have to say. And I want to be collaborative. And um, I find... No need to yell in a rehearsal. I, if I'm yelling in a rehearsal, something has gone horribly wrong, in my opinion. But we have this archetype, right? As like director as dictator, somewhat. I mean, that's still very lodged in my head from theater and 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 growing up. But what do you say to people who are like, yeah, you can't like, why would you admit you're not the smartest person in the room? Like, you have to have this demeanor that people know that you're, you know, know that you're strong and that you're in charge. I feel like if you're lying to people to make people think that you are the smartest, that's probably not a good leader. <laughs> I I can't guarantee that I am the smartest in the room. If I'm being honest uh, as a director, I don't, I do not know people's IQs. I don't even know if IQs are the best way to gauge someone's smartness, right? Like, I think, oh, golly, you know, um, I think, uh, if we don't, nothing is certain in this world, right? There are no certainties. And I can't stay, I cannot live a good life. I can't go home as a director feeling like, oh, I can go to bed and feel good about the work I did knowing that I made someone feel shitty. Um, I, That's a big part of my life is just knowing how I, how I make others feel. If theater is about making, how, 
about trying to elicit emotion from someone. And I, as a director, my main part of that project is working with the actors and all I'm doing is making them feel awful. That's a pretty awful, awful show, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's awful. And I think uh, um, as far just, as- sorry. Oh, No, go. go no, I want to hear what you I have to say. Thought, I just thought about, I just thought about the line in August Osage County where the freaking granddaughter, and I forget her name, won't eat won't eat meat because she can taste the fear in the chicken yeah right? I'm like i'm like you can sort of taste the fear in the production right when you, <laughs> you can when i go see a show and i know that oh my god they must have hated this show because i can tell because they're when they leave the stage they like drop that character and are just like walking off stage you know what i mean like i think oh my god it's just so obvious would I rather have a delicious lasagna made by my mom, made with love, or would I rather eat the um, two-day-old like casserole that the the person who is serving this up at the shack uh, hates to do their job? Like, you know what I mean? There, it, it. I firmly believe the energy you put into a piece is the energy the audience will take from it, and so if I approach my actors as a, if they were a garden and I were to talk awful to them, the, their, the fruits and the, the harvest will be so much less than if I were to water and play them great music and whisper. I mean, that's been scientifically proven at this point, right? That right, okay. like you nurture to create a better harvest. And that's all about what directors do. They are harvesters of a collective of a garden, right? And they are just helping make them grow as best as possible. I also would say that if someone um, thinks that they can't be a compassionate leader and lead um, efficiently, then I'm going to maybe ask them not to lead. Um, I, I firmly am of the belief that if you cannot lead with, with the best intentions of all, you should not be in a leadership position. To me, that sounds that you got into leadership for power and not into leadership to help grow. And I think that's all about intent of what a director is. If if someone is trying to be a, a leading an artistic environment because they saw everyone else do it uh, before and they liked how it made them feel when they got to lead a room, stay far away. Stay far away from leadership. Um, <laughs> maybe take some leadership courses. But if you're going in to lead a room, because you want to lead people and your emphasis is on the people, then I think that is always the good intention. And I think that's where it, it it stems from, right? Like if if you're not leading for the people, you're not leading with compassion. But if you are intently leading or stepping into leadership positions because you want to be for the people you lead, then your work will always be authentically compassionate. But it has to stem from wanting to be an advocate for the artist. And it cannot stem from being an advocate for your own personal growth. I think that's really the most important thing about it. I also think like, God, I would hate to be a dick. Like, I would hate to be a dick director. Like, I just <laughs> would hate that. I would hate for people. And maybe this is maybe, you know, the Leo rising of me coming out of being perceived by others in a negative sense, you know, like. I don't want my life to be known as the person who was a mean person to to other artists and caused other people harm. Like that sounds just so gross to me. <laughs> like I would hate that. And I and I 
And I would, I, I would argue no one wants to be that. And so there's a way to do ethical theater making compassionately. And I don't know that answer. I'm going to put this out here. I, I've been talking very much like in my own practice, but I'm still constantly fighting the cracks in my own directing that lacks the ethics that I demand for my own artwork, right? Like Ruthless, just being really upfront, we had a really short turnover and I did six day work weeks. Um, and for me, it was seven day work weeks. I didn't have a day off, you know, and I think by the end, I found that that was unethical. And it, it did make me feel bad. And I think the other hard thing about as director is you have to be very forward thinking, right? I I could not pull the train off of that track of that rehearsal schedule at this current juncture when I realized this is unethical. But what I can do is I can inform that for my next show and for my next practice. And I will. I think for, for directors, you're going to fail a lot and, and you will be unethical, but it's through those unethical mistakes. And hopefully you're not causing so much harm in those unethical mistakes that you can't redirect your whole artistic practice. So yeah, just being forward with those stunts. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> we could talk forever. And there are, we're going to talk a bit more, but I, I, I realize that we've gone for an hour already because I know like, it is flowing like a caramel macchiato. Uh, at least I feel like I'm in a position now where I'm getting more queer and trans and non-binary youth reaching out to me and asking about programs and asking about, you know, can I make it as an actor? And in a recent conversation I had, one of the things I said was, is an actor that I've worked with, that I've directed. And I said, absolutely. You have the talent. This industry is not just about talent though it's about networking it's about treating yourself and putting yourself out in the world as something that is both a human and a, a product a little bit a little bit and for this you know for this specific person who really hasn't had a lot of you know is a talent from a rural place in the midwest and hasn't necessarily had a lot of exposure to bigger markets or whatever i essentially gave them the advice of you know, like you did, apply to, you know, three to five schools, have it be a mix of, you know, look into conservatories, know that there's, it's more competitive and it may not be the fit for you. And, and since they are in the Midwest, I was like, you know, if I were you, I would absolutely apply to Northwest, you know, if you're, you, since you're you and interested in musical theater in the Midwest, absolutely you should apply to Northwestern because you have, Broadway superstar and just someone who's in that EDNI space so well, KO leading Northwestern's musical theater department. And so you're able, this person will be able to go and then see a non-binary leader in charge of that program, which I think is is very important. But what what would you add on in terms of queer and trans and non-binary youth who are leaving high school? maybe found that really affirming space in theater and want to keep that going on and are considering it as, as a, a profession. 
I would begin by saying the most important thing I was ever posed by a lovely individual. If you can have them on the podcast, they would be great. Um, Addie Barnhart. Um, she is an associate presser at Creighton and she uh, joined our team my senior year. So I only actually got her for half a year because of the pandemic because I graduated in 2020. But in that half year, she gave me the most important advice that I think um, it was the catalyst for my own my own method of art making. I asked along the lines of how can I get comfortable playing straight people all the time or playing men all the time? Because at this point, I was pretty sure with my non-binary identity, but being at a Catholic university, I was very quiet about it, you know. And she said to me, why do you want to play those roles? And that's a very, very hard thing to hear. Um, because for me, it was, well, those are the roles that exist. It was the first time someone didn't lie to me and say being your authentic self might damage your career, right? Um, Just from the possibilities. But what that is not doing, right? We've heard professors before. I've had parents say or whatever, like, well, to make it, you're going to have to take a voice class so that your voice doesn't sound gay anymore. Or you have to do this to appear straight. But what it's doing is actually saying, no, I don't want to play roles that make me uncomfortable. I'm going to use this agency to find out or create the spaces that make me feel comfortable. And so I think the question of like young queer people going into art is you can ask yourself, do you want to create your own and be as authentically yourself while also possibly understanding that that will maybe remove some commercial opportunities, but it will create some really fucking cool art. Um, or do you want to play into commercial lines theater? And it will put you in spaces that might be identity damaging to you. And there's not a right or wrong answer, right? There's pros and cons to both. Uh, you know, growing up Midwest, you know, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska my whole life. So, uh, you know, I got to be in a city, which is nice. So I don't know what it's like to be rural. But what I can say is when you make art that is authentic to you, you just feel so good. Um, <laughs> and so I would encourage one path over the other. But I don't think there's necessarily a wrong path. I just think knowing what you're getting into as a queer artist is important. Um, and even in the work of of fringe work, you're going to run into things that make people uncomfortable with your own identity and being able to present in the best way. But that's the thing is that it's about experimentation. It's about finding it over time. And so just allowing those spaces, I think, is is important. And also, God, I wish it wasn't so young that people had to figure that out. Like 18, to ask that question to yourself, <coughs> ridiculous. I will also say, I, to my young queers in going to, uh, to college right now, um, you know, conservatories are cool. They do not define success like everyone says they do. I, you know, I grew up being told that if I didn't go to conservatory, I basically wasn't going to make it as an artist. And that's just bullshit. Um, <laughs> artist is artist for everyone. And I think it's mainly pushed by people who go to conservatories that thinks that, yeah, because I went to a conservatory, I can't do this. Like, that's so fucking bullshit. It doesn't take in any of the the barriers to conservatories it doesn't take in the cost it doesn't take in all of these things right and so let's be really specific about what is a fulfilling life as an artist and not about what is a successful life and those are two very different things 
you can have a fulfilling life as an artist and still be doing something else with your life. You could be a successful artist and be miserable. Okay. So be, be cautious. And also just because someone goes to a fancy school does not mean that they're better than you. It's just a different highway to drive down. You know, some have a little bit more exits to take off. Some people <laughs> are on a rural road that you have to drive for miles and miles before the next exit. So, you know, that's a very uh, long, I guess, allegory. <laughs> I love it, though. I love it. I really appreciate it. And yeah, define success on your own terms, right? Because I think that's an important thing. And one of the, another thing I'll offer is Royer Bacchus, who was Laurie in the queered version of Oklahoma that happened at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. Um, she's just a really lovely human. And one of the things that she said that she did that really grounded her career was she wrote a mission statement for herself. And I, I'm paraphrasing here, but just that I believe it was something along the lines of when she's in terms of her career, she wants projects that align with bringing her full queer feminist self right to to productions and so um that's something where like you may not no one else may tell you that you could or should do that but if you create a mission statement for yourself pretending or just thinking of yourself as an institution right like when i do theater this is this is my mission statement this is what i want to align um i think that can guide things too I mean, yeah, there's no right answers in the art field. And the only person you have to take answers from truly is yourself, right? And so I think it's brilliant to have a to have a moral code of art making. And that's like my directing code I, I created in my own practice because I had no way to gauge my work, right? Am I doing harm? Am I creating environments where people leave feeling better? Am I creating art that is intrinsic upon the people I cast, right? I had to make that code because no one was telling me I was doing the right thing. So I had to figure out what the right thing was for myself. And that's really hard as a young person. I'm 24, right? Like I, I'm still on the younger spectrum. And so like, I, I just can't even imagine being 18 again, trying to figure out like, what is my moral code? That is massive. <laughs> that is a massive question. That is so unfair. Um, and so unfair for people to have to like figure out what school they're going to, to figure out like what's the right career path for them. I don't even know my answer yet. So kudos to young people everywhere. I'm glad I'm not one right now. <laughs> I guess I wanted to close our time together by, I was really, it's such a great reminder of what you were saying about what, you know, you tell your cast members, you know, what are you doing for yourself? What are you doing? So I just want to know your answer. What are you doing to take care of yourself? What What are your rejuvenation practices currently? Um. Well, I go to Colorado. Um. So I did that after my rehearsal, and I did the things that restore people in Colorado. Uh, viewer discretion is advised. You can leave that up to yourself. Uh. So I had a great time there. Um. And then uh, I came back. You know. Um. I'm a civic engager outside of directing. I work for Opera Omaha. And so I work within communities without artistic programming and I provide art workshops. And so 
it's important for me to take care of myself so that I can be with people who who are going through way harder times than I am. I am so privileged. My life is so good compared to like comparatively, right? And so like I need to be the best person I could be for people who are going through hard times so that when I lead artistic workshops, they feel taken care of and loved in that moment, right? And so I have to take care of myself. And so for me, um, I love to draw. I love to sew. Um, And all of this usually stems around theater making, right? Like, here's the thing. My life is theater. And I am theater. Like, that is what my life is. But even though I am still in the process of art making, I'm doing it out of enjoyment. I am creating dresses because I want to create a dress, not because I have to. I also uh, currently downloaded Red Dead Redemption 2, which was a cowboy game um, on the Xbox, which came out years ago. And I am so slow to the technology world. Um, I'm just not not with it. Not I'm not a Gen Zer. Uh, I don't think, uh, even though my year date, my my day of my year of birth says otherwise I don't know how to work technology so I'm gonna try that game out I'm very excited about that um I have a cat Francisco uh, who made an appearance in this um they're amazing and then my partner Fabian who is a genderqueer documentarian um is also is just the light of my life um and um I really like being able to just be with them you know they they rejuvenate me and you know, I I also like my alone time. I, I like to be by... Sorry, I just started like getting teared up talking about my partner. I love them. Um, I like to be by myself. Alone time is really important for me. And I know that's not for everyone. Um, but I think as a leader, it's important for me to really process constantly how I interacted with people. Did I... Was I like nonchalantly ableist while working with my populations that uh are uh have brain or spinal cord injuries and I didn't realize I said an ableist remark was I um being homophobic in something else as a homosexual myself you know what I mean homosexual sounds like a textbook you know I, I I think for me it's it's a lot of processing and I I the one way I take care of myself is how I take care of other people for me is uh that's how I how I do it is I make sure that I'm I'm checking in and I make sure that I feel good about how I spoke with others and I guarantee you after this I will be reflecting on this whole podcast thinking about all the awful things I said and some of the great things I said as well because I'm a genius no just kidding (laughs) Um, what are you doing? What are you doing for yourself today? I somehow knew you were going to throw that question. <laughs> you can't ask that question and not ask me to throw back. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, as we were talking about before we started recording, um, you know, a current season of drag race kind of becomes my, you know, that's my football season. <laughs> oh yeah. Not, you know, we're making, we're making predictions. We're talking about who we like and um drag race is a huge drag race and dragula and then a lot of following a lot of what those artists do and the art they create um outside of the framework of reality television shows uh i love going down that rabbit hole i i spend time yes pets are huge i spend time with my dog river river is a delightful silver 
Silver Lab, who has become very bonded to my 80-year-old dad. And that kind of makes me cry a little bit. Like he'll, I got to think he's keeping my dad alive a little bit. Like he'll, he'll camp out outside my dad's bedroom door if he hasn't seen him in a while. And ugh, that's just kind of lovely to watch that relationship. What else do I do? I watch a lot of stuff and I have gotten rid of judging myself for what I watch. And so right now I'm watching uh, you, but the re- I will say the reason I'm watching you on Netflix is because Trixie and Katya did a YouTube on, they, on their series we like to watch for Netflix. They dissected the most recent season and that, I mean, yes, uh, that that piece of uh, curated content did get me to watch Netflix. <laughs> thing. Here is the thing. I am so, I think, gosh, we must live in a so many different lives, right? Like of like uh, judging how how the the normal populace spends their time, right? Like I have to think in our past life, we were judging people for listening to the radio. And then I have to think before that past life, we were judging people for, um, like, I don't know. Like uh, cave paintings. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think, I think humans have an incessant desire to judge how we spend our time that isn't quote unquote productive, right? I Specifically think. working for the man. But like, granted, we are indulging products from the man but that's a different conversation for a whole other podcast um don't judge yourself for watching what you like to watch it is your time it's the one time you're not like plugging away for the for the big man up in the office so you have fun <laughs> and like the delicious what's really yummy is like watching a true crime documentary and like playing candy crush on my phone at the same time that is heaven and oh I love, I've got, I get into like press on, uh, into like nails and like, and then it becomes the thing of like making sure that all the, like right now I have four different kinds of nails on that just is just, it's fun. And like, because I'm autistic, it's a sensory thing too. So I can sort of be like, okay, I want to feel that all the nails are the same length and that brings joy and charcuterie, like really chill charcuterie boards because I'm not. I can cook, but I find a lot of times I don't want to cook. And so like having like, okay, like we have a little prosciutto, a little sharp cheddar, some olives, some pickles, some crackers, like that never hap- never happier than like with a little mini charcuterie board about to watch something. <laughs> You know what? And I just feel like charcuterie boards also have to be around since forever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's such a thing right now. But like, if we're being honest, like anything you don't have to cook and you put on a piece of wood, like we could call that a charcuterie board. So like, I don't know why we judge it. Like, if we really want to go into it, we could go into the French Revolution and be like, well, if someone eats bread and cheese, that's a charcuterie board. So you do you. <laughs> And we've ended at the French Revolution. This is we amazing. Les Mis is in, in town right now. So it's <laughs> on brain. It was top of mind. Uh, yeah. I still can't believe it's not about the revolution. Sorry. <laughs> that took me so long. Like when it came out with the Anne Hathaway edit, I was like, wait, it's in 1805? <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you the, uh, I have, 
I don't know why I have, I have, because of my eighth grade social studies teacher, shout out to Sue Fox. I'm not sure if she's listening, but she somehow was able to get me the footage, all this footage from high school. And um, so there is, I'm going to send you my little YouTube clip of 18 year old me as, no, 17 year old me as Fontaine and singing I Dreamed a Dream. Well, that's going to be shared right after this podcast. Oh, literally dream role would love to be her. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You are a beacon of of queer joy in Nebraska and and the world. Thank you for this time. And I just hope that I hope that people who hire directors are listening and um, I hope they hire you. And I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck with all those fellowship applications so thank you uh, and if thank you, you so need much. to hire me anyone make art with taylor it's a sentence hit me up please <laughs> sorry that's, I had to plug. At, at gmail that's at, at gmail, gmail right? at gmail.com yes. yeah yes i had to plug i'm so sorry no it's good i was just like but there it's more because it's an email <laughs> yes make art with taylor at gmail.com Okay. I did want to do Hotmail just because I think that's so camp. <laughs> Obviously, we could talk forever, but for our our listeners' ear earbuds and eardrums and just the whole anatomy of their ear, that'll be all for today. But like, thanks for listening, everyone, and thank you for being here. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by C.J. Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.